We're going to dig into another one of Paul's teachings that is very relevant, very helpful for us today. It's from Acts chapter 14, verses 8 through 21. And here we read the following. In Lystra, so this is Paul and Barnabas still on that first missionary journey. In, in Lystra, there sat a man who was lame. And he had been that way from birth and had never walked. He listened to Paul as he was speaking. Paul looked directly at him. He saw that he had faith to be healed and he called out, stand up on your feet. And at that, the man jumped up and began to walk. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in the Lyconian language, the gods have come down to us in human form. Barnabas they called Zeus and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. And the priest of Zeus, whose temple was just outside the city, brought bulls and wreaths to the gate city gates because he and the crowds wanted to offer sacrifices to them. But when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of this, they tore their clothes and rushed out into the crowd shouting, friends, why are you doing this? We too are only human, just like you. We are bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them. In the past, he let all nations go their own way. Yet he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their seasons. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Even with these words, though, they had difficulty. Paul and Barnabas had difficulty keeping the crowd from sacrificing to them. Then some Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and won the crowd over. They stoned Paul and dragged him outside the city, thinking that he was dead. But after the disciples had gathered around him, he got right back up and went back into the city. The next day, he and Barnabas left for Derbe. They preached the gospel in that city and won a large number of disciples. And then they returned to Lystra, Iconium, and Antioch. This is God's word. Again, today we're looking at the book of Acts. And one of the things I've been doing in the evening service is we've, we've, we've really been looking at the second quarter of the book of Acts. And for really 2,000 years, the Christian church has looked at the book of Acts after Easter and the Sundays following Easter. And the reason for that is the book of Acts is the story of the early Christian church. And uh, why is it important after Easter then to look at Acts? It's important for us after we realize, you know, once Jesus Christ died for the sins of the world, he rose from the grave and conquered death, he ascended into heaven and he handed over the keys of the kingdom, the keys to his ministry to his disciples and said, you will be my witnesses. It's important for us to look and see, okay, what were God's people up to at that point? And how could we potentially emulate that in sort of a 21st century context. And as you go through the flow of Acts, the first quarter, like the first seven chapters or so, are basically a snapshot of the Christian church in Jerusalem. What were, uh, the, what were the believers doing? How were they interacting with one another? Uh, kind of a summary passage there says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the Christian fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then when you get to chapter 8, there's a little bit of a, a, a shift And very clearly, the Holy Spirit is now pushing God's people further to do that whole thing about the Great Commission where they go out to the ends of the earth. And it's largely a story of Christian conversions. 
so that in Acts chapter 8, you get the conversion of an Ethiopian prime minister. In Acts chapter 9, you get the conversion story of the Pharisee Saul of Tarsus, who becomes the Apostle Paul. In Acts chapter 10, you get the conversion story of a Roman centurion by the name of Cornelius. And very clearly, this, what the Spirit is doing is he's moving the gospel out into the world. And even the shift of action in the early church largely moves from uh, Jerusalem to a town called Antioch, Syrian Antioch. And actually, I can show you on a map here what that looks like. Jerusalem is way down here. About 300 miles north or so on the eastern border of the Mediterranean Sea is Syrian Antioch. It is the third largest city in the Roman Empire. It's multicultural. It's cosmopolitan. It's uh, uh, lots of different groups of people. And this is one of the cool things about the Christian church because it's in Antioch that the followers of Christ are first referred to as Christians. And you know why? Why do people just think to call them Christians? It's very interesting. It's the first time in world history that this had happened. Up until this point in history, just by somebody's nationality, you were able to make a, a pretty comprehensive assessment of who they were as a person. So, for instance, if you called somebody a Jew, what did you know about them? You knew their religious beliefs. You knew their ethnic lineage. You knew uh, their moral standards. You knew their dietary restrictions. You basically knew how their week looked, by and large, just by calling them a Jew. And the, nearly the exact same thing was true of all other nationalities, the, uh, the, the Ethiopians, the Samaritans, Greeks, and so forth. But now all of a sudden you have these converts to Christianity. And so a, a Jewish Christian, you can't just call them a Jew anymore because that doesn't state the totality of who they were as a person. You have to give them a new name, and the name that they were given was Christian, which means those who belong to Christ. Uh, this is the first time in world history that uh, a name like that had to be given because the followers of Christ were metaphorically breaking down the walls that existed in the city of Antioch. And it's that unique dynamic amongst people groups that the Holy Spirit is now trying to push out into the rest of the known world uh, around the Mediterranean world. And so on the first missionary journey in Acts 13, uh, the Holy Spirit calls Paul and Barnabas and they travel, you can see there, across the uh, Mediterranean and over into, in Acts 13, we get the Apostle Paul's first recorded sermon for us, which is in a place called, also called Antioch. I get that's confusing. Uh, there's a lot of Antiochs in the ancient world, but this is Pisidian Antioch. And the Apostle Paul, those of you who have studied his missionary journeys a little bit, you know that his methodology, when he first comes to a new town, the first place he almost invariably goes is the synagogues. Why? That's the lowest hanging fruit of Christian prospects. These are people who already have studied the Hebrew Scriptures. They have already submitted themselves to uh, the teachings of the word of God. The one missing piece of information that they don't yet have is they don't realize that Jesus of Nazareth is the messianic fulfillment to the, all the Old Testament prophecies. And so that's the piece that they need. And once they get that piece, uh, many of them are by and large good, so long as they believe Jesus is, is the resurrected Lord. Uh, we see Paul's sermon in Acts 13 in Pisidian Antioch, and he's quoting all over the place from Old Testament scriptures. And yet you just go one chapter further into Acts 14, which we just read from. And now he's in this town called Lystra in the region of Lyconia. And there's no synagogue so far as we can tell. He's preaching in the streets. 
as he's preaching to a people, this is the first time we see Christians witnessing to people who have no biblical worldview. And that is so important for us to see in 2019 because the shift from Pisidian Antioch to Lystra is approximately the same kind of shift that's happened in the United States in the past 50 years or so. We have shifted in the, from the 20th century to the 21st century of a culture that is by and large mostly biblically literate to a culture that by and large does not accept the word of God as basically authoritative. And that affects the Apostle Paul's teaching methodology and it probably should impact ours somewhat too. So for instance, back in the 20th century, every evangelism tract that you would ever see, and maybe some of you might know what I'm talking about with an evangelism tract, one of those little pamphlets somebody hands out. And in, in the 20th century, what they, all, they all work the same basic way. It doesn't matter uh, if it was God's Great Exchange or the stuff that was produced by Campus Crusades or the Navigators, or, or it was all the same basic thing. What it was is a series of Bible passage after Bible passage after Bible passage that convinced you, you are a sinful human being, uh, you are not capable of getting right with God on the basis of your sins, but God loved you enough to come in the person of Jesus Christ, pay for your sins, and if you would just believe, if you would just repent of your sins and turn to him, you can have salvation and eternal life with him. That's how pretty much every gospel tract and gospel presentation in the 20th century works. What happens when you fast forward to today and your society has no consciousness of sin? How do you talk to people in such a way so that they are willing to turn from their basic beliefs and turn from themselves and turn to a resurrected and living God if they feel no guilt? Paul shows us kind of how to do it. And we're going to dig into this a little bit here today and I'll do it with these three steps. We're going to see proclaiming, to, to proclaim the gospel to a post-Christian culture, you have to proclaim through both words and deeds you have to identify the idols that exist in that culture and you have to be able to state the gospel uh, in a way that resonates with people. Okay, So proclaiming the gospel through word and deeds, uh, identifying the idols of a culture and understanding the gospel in a way that resonates with people who don't have a biblical background. Okay, First of all, word and deeds gospel proclamation. You'll notice that in the opening verses there, verses 8 through 10, this is kind of an appendage to the lesson, but I think it's important for us today. Uh, the first thing that we see is the Apostle Paul miraculously heals a guy who has been a, a, a crippled man since birth. And Paul's teaching in, uh, he's, he's teaching in the streets, and what he does is uh, he looks around and he sees that this crippled man is actually staring at him and he's listening. It says he's listening with faith. And at that moment, the Apostle Paul heals him. Now, we'll get to that more in a second here, but what I want you to understand is, is Paul's on his first missionary journey. And generally speaking, I think most of us, if you were to define mission work, you'd say it's taking the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, over to a people group that don't yet know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And by and large, that's true and not a bad definition. But we also, it, it's interesting, we have the good fortune at St. Marcus of having probably eight to ten, you know, a combination of missionaries and, and former missionaries and missionary wives. And I bet if you ask them, if you just go into a foreign culture and tell people what they're supposed to believe, how, pe how receptive are they going to be to you? They'll probably say, well, not very. And the first thing that you need to do is you need to gain somebody's trust. 
And gaining somebody's trust, by and large, comes through showing physical graces to them. So that might be food. It might be hospitality. It might be medical supplies or medical care. It might be uh, English as a second language courses. That seems to be very popular uh, in missionary work today. In, in other words, until people recognize that they can trust you, until people can recognize that you're not just trying to run their life and tell them how to believe and you know, kind of imperialistically take them over, until they can trust you, they're not going to be inclined to listen to what you have to say. And so it's not at all that we don't teach them about the forgiveness of sins and new life in Christ. It's that they're very clearly in mission work has to be an embodiment of physical grace you're pouring out your assets to meet the needs of the people. I think most of us, most of us today understand that is probably an essential part. Words and deeds blended seamlessly is an essential part of world mission work. Here's the thing that I'm not convinced most Christians today understand. The thing is, the soil on which you're now standing, the land in which you're now living, at least in a younger generation, Christianity is a foreign culture to that generation. And so in the same way that it was obvious that when you go and do mission work out there, there has to be words and deeds blended seamlessly. Any ministry today moving forward based on the temperament and the disposition of a young generation that does not combine words and deeds is going to die. Now, you might say, well, yeah, the Apostle Paul can do miracles, and so that presents a pretty nice platform for teaching the gospel and convincing people of truth and stuff like that. Don't get distracted by the miracles. Yes, the early apostles were sometimes given miraculous abilities like this, but the vast majority of the time when the gospel is clicking and the believers are doing deed ministries as well as a platform to it, it's naturalistic ministry. So for instance, in Acts chapter 6, the distribution of food to the widows, or in Acts chapter 4, the near communal living and the sharing of possessions amongst the Christians, or in Acts chapter 2, Two, uh, the hospitality and friendship being offered to all people by the Christians. Nothing about that is supernatural except the grace. See, they're just doing natural things, but they're doing it with this other focused love and grace. And that is enough. That deed ministry is enough to provide a backdrop against which uh, the gospel is proclaimed powerfully. And so let me just tie this point up together here real quick. I think... uh, if you're being honest and you make an assessment of churches, I think that you see a lot of churches that are fairly good at articulating teaching from Scripture, and yet, by and large, they look at things like human compassion as the government's job. And I also think there's churches out there that are fairly decent at mercy ministries, but they would never dream of calling anybody to repentance over anything. The early church did both, and it was very powerful, and we should be both too. Second point, how do you talk about idols or proclaiming idols to a post-Christian world? I think, I'm going to tip my hand and say, I think this is the best way to communicate the gospel in a post-Christian climate. Uh, The main events of this whole section are 11 to 15 or 11 to 17, and it's difficult to understand without a little bit of background. The background of the text is there's a local legend. Uh, What we have, I showed you the map earlier, but the city of Lystra is in a region called Lyconia, and just to the west of that is a region called Phrygia. And out of Phrygia was born a legend uh, amongst these Greco-Roman people that at one point in time, in the past, the gods had come down to them. The gods, specifically Zeus and Hermes, came down and they visited an elderly couple. 
Baucus and Philemon is how the legend goes. And Baucus and Philemon were very uh, welcoming and entertained them and all that stuff. But the rest of the townspeople in the city were very inhospitable. And for their inhospitality, Zeus called down a flood that wiped out a good portion of the population. Now, this is all on the local consciousness of the people of Lystra, and particularly the priest of Zeus, who works and operates just outside the city of Lystra, when Paul and Barnabas come to town and they heal a guy who's been crippled from birth, he says, I'm not going to make the same mistake again. We're not going to let uh, Zeus and Hermes get out of here without their just uh, praise. And so he whips all the people into this level of sacrifice and praise for Paul and Barnabas. They believe Barnabas, who's perhaps the more stately looking of the two, is, is Zeus. And they think that Paul, who is uh, perhaps the chief speaker amongst the two, is the embodiment of the messenger god Hermes. And they're so excited, they actually slip into the Lyconian language, which, you know, so the Greek language is the main language of the empire, but some people, when they get really excited, slip into their native tongue. And they're bursting out these praises in their native tongues, and they're offering these sacrifices, and this also explains why there's a communication gap, and it takes a minute for Paul and Barnabas to realize what's going on. When they realize that they are being worshipped as gods, do you remember what the text says they do? They tear their clothes which is like the, the typical Jewish reaction to hearing something that is blasphemous. Blasphemy is giving to, to humans the credit that only God himself really deserves. And Paul and Barnabas, again, you, you notice how they react to this. I think you and I, if we were in that position, I think, at least, I'll just speak for myself, I would probably say, oh, guys, that's very nice of you, but... Uh, there's really no need. I don't deserve that kind of credit. The, r- the real credit belongs to Jesus Christ. In other words, I would sort of passively, humbly, you know, accept it and then redirect it. Because I think it would be my natural instinct. That's not what Paul and Barnabas do. You see, they kind of flip out. Why? Because they're not going to have undue credit that belongs to God given to them. They're angry about it. And what this does is it provides a very unique platform for Paul to preach the gospel to a people that you notice he doesn't quote scripture once. He doesn't even use the word sin at all. Here's what he says, and this is the heart and core of his message. I'm going to reread to you verses 15 to 17. He says, friends, why are you doing all of this? We too are only human just like you. We're bringing you good news, telling you to turn from these worthless things to the living God who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything that is in them. In the past, this God let all nations go their own way, but he has not left himself without testimony. He has shown kindness by giving you rain from heaven and crops in their season. He provides you with plenty of food and fills your hearts with joy. Now notice, again, he doesn't quote scripture and he doesn't use the word sin, and yet he provides a pretty comprehensive uh, teaching here. If I touch on all the points that he lists here real quickly, he talks about how God created all things. He talks about how in the past God has been patient with the ignorant people, Uh, as they have gone their own way. He talks about how God has generously provided for all mankind, and he talks about how God is the author of all human pleasure, and therefore, if you're going to be uh, on the good side, the side of joy, you're going to have to be on his side moving forward. And he also says he wants you on his side. He is a living God who died in your place for your sins, but now has conquered death, and you can receive all of the blessings that this God wants to offer to you if you would simply turn 
from the worthless things that are currently running your life. Now, the word that he uses there for worthless things, it's a word that means the difference between the way things appear and the way things actually are in reality. Like the deceptive vanities of life. Or a more common biblical word for that is idols. Idols are the things in your life that Satan uses to deceive you and pull you away from Jesus Christ. They're good things that he tries to get your relationship so strong with that it becomes prioritized ahead of your relationship with Jesus. Idols are the, the things that we look to to give us what only God himself can give us. And they're the things in life that we think give us meaning and purpose, identity, security in the present, and hope for the future. Uh, and I'm convinced that the language of idolatry and the vocabulary of idolatry is the single best way of resonating with a not super biblically literate crowd today because everybody understands the language of priorities and disordered loves. Uh, by the way, if you're going to speak to a non-Christian culture about idols, you probably need to know what your own are as well. Do you, are you able to identify your own idols and repent of those? If not, let me just give you a couple quick questions real quick to run through. And I guarantee, if you gave me, if you want to figure them out, sit down with me for five minutes and we can talk it through. But otherwise, just ask yourself these simple questions. What's the thing in life that gives you the most anxiety and makes you the most angry? What is the thing that your identity is super sensitive about and you're constantly trying to defend? What is the thing in your life that you're constantly sacrificing for? your time, your energy, your money, your heart, your attention? What is the thing in life that you said, if I could just have this one thing, I would finally be happy? Every single human being I know has an answer to that question. What is the thing in life, if I could just get this one thing, yes, then, at that moment, then I would finally be happy. Or what is the thing in your life that if you lost it, you feel like, well, my life would hardly be worth living anymore? If your answer to any one of those questions is something other than Jesus Christ, that means it has some level of idolatrous power in your life. Idols are the good things that we turn to that we think can give us what only God himself can give us. Now, how do you speak the gospel into people who have that kind of disordered idol-level love? By the way, I'm not at all suggesting that you don't use the Bible. Please don't get that from what I'm saying. Um, what I'm saying is in, in the 21st century... Uh, with people who do not accept the Bible as authoritative, where are you going to start a, a conversation with somebody in a post-Christian culture? In 2019, if I turn to somebody and say, you are a sinner and you need to repent of your sins and turn to Jesus Christ as your Savior, you know what they're going to say to me? They say, well, what do, you, what's, what do you mean by sin? And for that matter, who are you to judge me on whatever is sinful? And if I even say, well, but look at the Bible. The Bible says this is sin. Very clearly it spells it out. They're going to say, well, why should I trust what the Bible has to say about anything? Uh, how do you tell somebody that they need Jesus Christ in a people group that never feels guilty about almost anything? On the other hand, if I say something to somebody like, you know what, whether you are religious or not, we're all living for something. And for that matter, we're all kind of mastered by something. And we're all sacrificing for something. Right now, 
that thing that we're sacrificing that we think is going to make us us is, is if we're going to be honest, it's practically enslaving us. It's practically running our lives. And if we carry it out on our current trajectory, it could end up ruining us. But then I say, you know, but I know a master that if you serve him, he will satisfy you. But if you fail him, he won't curse you, he'll forgive you. See, most people today, that, they can resonate with that. In fact, one of the reasons why I know that works is uh, there's a quote that I pull out virtually every year and use at least once because it's so good in talking about uh, the, the natural disposition of human hearts and idolatry. It's by an author who has since taken his own life back in the early 2000s, but it's a guy that the New York Times and Newsweek called the most important postmodern uh, novelist uh, of today. And therefore, he's also very important in speaking into a post-Christian culture. His name is David Foster Wallace. And my favorite thing that he ever wrote was the commencement address at the Kenyon College graduation in 2005. And you can read the whole thing online, but here's just a snippet of it. This is not a Christian. But he said, in the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice that we get is what to worship. And the compelling reason for maybe choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it Jesus Christ or Allah, be it Yahweh or the Wiccan mother goddess, is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. You know what? He's exactly right. Just flesh that out just a little bit. Let's say the thing that you're living for is your career. And you have a performance-based identity, which means that your whole sense of self and sense of well-being is based on, uh, you know, the grades that you get in school or the accomplishments and the credentials that you get at work or the money that you accumulate in the bank since that's the, you know, the world's best measuring stick for whether or not somebody is successful. And along the way, in order to be successful, you have to work very hard and you have to make a tremendous amount of sacrifices to get to that advanced career. And you might sacrifice along the way your health and you might sacrifice close personal relationships. And one day you find yourself laying in a hospital bed and you're getting yourself ready to die and you're trembling because you have no idea this uncertainty about what's on the other side and you think back and think none of it was worth it. What did all that get me in the end? What did my credentials get me in the end? What did my career advancement and the sacrifices I made get me in the end? And at that point, the God that you served for so long will absolutely curse you. See? Or maybe it's not career advancement. Maybe your God is beauty. And this is the thing that you make tons of sacrifices to be beautiful people. Oh, my goodness. You, almost all food. You sacrifice almost anything that tastes good. All carbohydrates, all sugar, all fat, all anything. And you know what? It's, it's a big sacrifice. But the thing that keeps you coming back is the intoxicating feeling of being able to fit into those pants once again the next season or the compliments from people about how good you're looking that, you know, at that time. And that's enough to drive you and keep pushing you forward for a while and serving that God. But you know what eventually comes? The wrinkles come. Oh my goodness, the wrinkles. And, and there's just makeup and more makeup. And, and eventually there's not like little, like cheap little makeup can't cover it anymore. You need to get procedures. And you need things tucked and pulled and injected and everything. And you know what? Eventually you do it all. And you sacrifice for it all. And time catches up. And you're old and you look old. And that God that you have been serving all your life has finally completely failed you and you know it. Or maybe, you know, it's not, I'm not as vain that it would be beauty and I'm not as self-centered and, you know, whatever, that it would be career. But maybe it's just, I don't need all those stuff. I just want to be comfortable. 
And the meaning and the purpose of my life is that I just basically want to be comfortable. And so you sacrifice everything for that. That essentially becomes your life pursuit and your identity. But invariably in life, something comes along, whether it's uh, something that compromises your own health or your child's health. And see, the thing is, if, if your comfort is your identity and it's your life's pursuit, then when you inevitably lose it, you not only become uncomfortable, but you've completely lost your whole identity. And you've lost the meaning and purpose of life. This is, this is what idols do. They promise so much and they bless you so little. They're deceptive and they're ineffective and they're empty. And you know what's really interesting? The ancients functioned the exact same way. What do you think they were sacrificing for? They were sacrificing to fertility and beauty and sex. They were sacrificing to career and prominence and wealth. They were sacrificing for war and politics and health and all that other stuff. The only difference between them and us is they were actually self-aware enough to call those gods. Idols always promise more than they deliver. uh, And they take more than they can give. But here's how you speak the gospel into a people who have mixed priorities. You say... What if there was a God who actually would give more than he would take? What if there was a God who actually is incomprehensibly better than advertised? What if there is a God who actually takes your sins and gifts you his righteousness? What if there is a God who loves you enough that he would go through an uh, infinite amount of hell in order to bring you up to an eternal heaven? You know, the people of Lystra were wrong, but they weren't completely wrong. The people of Lystra thought that the gods have come down in the form of Barnabas and Paul. But you know what? They're not the only people who have ever thought that way. Every culture has always had stories that suggested maybe someday some beings greater than us will ultimately come down and rescue us from the trials that we are facing in our lives. Every culture has longed for that. Where do you think things like superhero culture actually comes from? Every culture in world history has had legends, has had stories, had made, has made movies, Uh, about God's appearing and transcending time and space and overcoming death. Every culture has stories about love that is so great that it heals our deepest wounds and leads us to happily ever after. Every culture has legends and stories about goodness that overcomes evil. Why is it that that exists in the unconscious of every single civilization in world history? Because deep down, intuitively, we know that in Christ Jesus, those stories are actually true. There is a God. It is the God who came down from heaven to earth in order to rescue humans. He traversed time and space in order to conquer death in our place. And he did it because he possessed a love for us that heals like nothing in this world can so that we can one day live with him happily ever after. Even the pagan world demonstrates a longing for some being who will love us enough to come down and rescue us from the terrors of life and take us safely back to live with him in his kingdom. The difference between us and them is you actually know this hero by name. His name is Jesus and your mission is to go and share it with that world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, sometimes we feel overwhelmed and don't know where to begin with the people in our society, 
and honestly, personally in our lives who just don't believe. We don't even know what to say. Remind us that we know the name of the one that they're looking for. Help us repent of our own personal idols and help us proclaim your amazing grace in both word and deed. Jesus, it's in your mighty name that we pray. Amen.